Hi, TPC parents. This is uh, Dr. Norm Tebow, and thrilled to be with you again. And I have a dear friend uh, and colleague who will be joining us today. Dina McMahon is a licensed independent clinical social worker with a national reputation for excellence in areas ranging from attachment therapy and adoption dynamics to childhood sexual abuse and trauma. Since 1981, she's made a difference in the lives of adults, children, adolescents, couples, families, and mental health professionals in Minnesota, throughout the nation, and in Canada. She has spoken nationally and internationally on the dynamics of attachment, brain development, and early trauma. She works with a diverse group of clients from a variety of communities and cultures. She's noted for her work in the areas of adoption, attachment therapy, and childhood sexual abuse. I, I got to know Dina as we served together on the Attach Board of Directors, and uh, she was so kind and welcoming to me. She's been a long, long stalwart supporter of Attach, and I'm so grateful to call her a friend. So Dina, welcome. Thank welcome. you. And thank you all you parents out there. Wow. Oh. What Norm didn't say is I'm a heck of a cook. I cook. <laughs> it's not on my resume. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, I, uh, I'm thrilled to have Dina here and, uh, you know, she's her wisdom. I'm sure you'll hear it. And um, I wish you could all meet her in person because she's just that wonderful. So, Dina, we'll get started. And, and uh, you know, you have been involved in adoption at a variety of levels throughout your life. How did you first become involved in the, the adoption community? And how well, has your role evolved? Yeah, you know, that's very interesting. I never set out, Norm, to know about adoption, to work in adoption. I started out knowing nothing about it. Um, I did in-home family therapy with really deepened child protection cases. And my goal was to actually try to prevent placement out of home. Uh -huh. um, and of course, in like many fields, the longer you do this, the more your re reputation grows and the harder your case referrals become. So at the end, I was just getting the hardest of the hard cases around the state. And it turns out the vast majority of the children that I worked with had been so harmed and their relationships so damaged in their family systems that they could not go home. And so by default, I retained my caseload working with children who were in permanent, quote, foster care, and then mm -hmm. helped them transition into a permanent home uh, with an adoptive family member or uh, not a family member. And then I continued my relationship. So I did sometimes three years of work from the time the child enters foster care until the time maybe two even two years after their finalization and adoption. And wow. that's professional is that my clients all couldn't go home ever. Really? And yeah. No, they, they just couldn't. There was no possibility of reunification. So um, that's, that, that opened the door for her. I suddenly decided I have to get smart about adoption. Mm -hmm. I've been referring my client kids and families out uh, for therapy and there was almost nobody out there that would consider themselves an adoption specialist. You know, you talk to a mental health professional, it's like, well, what do you know about adoption? Oh yeah, I'm good about adoption. I've had two or three cases. Yeah, right. Oh, exactly. in, in 10 years, in 10 years. And it's like, and, and I, I, my eyes were opened so rapidly about how different working with the adopted family dynamics is than other family systems. It's not the same as a birth family. It just isn't. So, and then of course, relative placement adoptions are even more complicated. So that's how I got involved and I have never looked back. That's wow. where, my, where I stayed. Yeah. You know, you, you bring up a really good point, uh, something I hadn't intended on talking about, but I do want to jump into it a little bit. 
you've had to see both sides of this. You know, for many of our parents, you know, they, they, they carry a lot of emotional anguish because they felt like their children should have been removed from a home sooner. And yet, you know, there's, there's the argument that the kids need to stay in the home, you know, for the most healing. How have you, I guess, how have you seen that? And have you seen it evolve? Oh, you know, it's very interesting because when a, part of my practice, Norm, is that I'm a forensic expert in child protection cases. Yeah. So I go to court and testify. Like next week, I have five trials. Wow. And, and yeah, I know. Um, COVID set us back, so now we're catching up. But so I have contested placements. I have um, termination of parental rights. Mm-hmm. I have egregious harm cases. I have failed adoption cases. Um, and I have mental health friends who say it is not a mental health professional's job to decide who is or isn't capable of parenting. Um, my retort, of course, is who should decide that, lawyers? Yeah, right. <laughs> if not a mental health professional, then who? Right. And, and I am deeply committed to helping families stay together and reunify whenever possible. But quite frankly, and I might step on some political toes here, the pendulum has swung so far uh, in our court systems right now that removing children and keeping them removed to find permanency outside of the family system is extraordinarily difficult because we've gone back to children are property of the parents mm. rather than the children to have rights. So the children's rights and the guardian ad litem's best interest factors have reduced greatly in terms of its influence in, in court hearings. So I'd probably fall on the side of, I don't think we get kids out soon enough and keep them out for safety as nearly as good a job as we used to do. Mm-hmm. We, used to, we used to be able to identify a poor prognosis case and get to permanency relatively easy. And now we really harm children through our system. And I have deep empathy for families who have removed children. Yeah, it's such a challenge, such a yeah. challenge. The majority of the kids, you know, on our campus have suffered developmental trauma. Right. You know, and 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 goes on and on and on. And right. Um, I, I applaud you for your work because that you must be exposed to some very challenging and difficult experiences and cases. You know, I am. Uh, every day I did do a case that I just think it can't get worse. I mean, I do, I do the death and murder cases. Um, but quite frankly, Norm, I, I don't do anything as hard as raising an adopted child with developmental trauma. Mm. <laughs> I think that might be the hardest job out there. Um, I get to see it from the outside. I don't live it on the inside. I have not adopted children. So I, my hats go off to your client families. Yeah. Yeah. They are, they are definitely, they don't like to be called heroes, but they're definitely heroes because they hang in there and it's so hard sometimes to hang in there. It is really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It is really hard. I was uh, in a meeting um, about two, three years ago with Utah's congressional delegation in Washington, DC and, and, Along the same lines of what you're saying, I was trying to explain to them, you have no idea what adoptive parents go through right. and how they are so marginalized by the mental health community. They're right. not supported. And, uh, you know, it, just amazing to me. I think they're the best citizens in our nation. Yeah. They don't get the, uh, the attention nor the support they need. No, we've gifted them with a child. Shouldn't they be happy? Yeah, right. <laughs> this is what they wanted after all (laughs) how lucky are they (laughs) yeah i i I get it they are really an an unsung bunch of heroes and you know knowing what we know about developmental trauma and the journey the children that they love have gone through before they get to their homes 
you know, we have conversations about uh, how successful is adoption and what are statistics looking like. Quite frankly, I'm surprised that is it, it's as successful as it is. Yeah. You know, it's not a surprise that not every placement or, or adoption um, works out in the long haul, but it is surprising that as many do. Yeah, yeah. What are we looking at? We'd say probably based on the population we have and what we know about placement of kids in mental health hospitals and wilderness programs and treatment programs like ours, you know, 30 to 40 percent of the population are adopted kids. So, you know, we're thinking 70 to 60 to 70 percent of adoptions are quote unquote successful, however you define it if not more. And right. uh, that's wonderful. Yes, it really is. And in many countries, those children end up in our homeless population. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly if they age out of foster care. Yep. The odds are not good. Not good. Well, um, Dina, you know, as you think about the, the changes you've seen related to adoption and adoption treatment through the years, what are some of the biggest challenges and changes you've seen? Well, I think in some ways, the changes have been very positive. Mm -hmm. Um, We now recognize that the many children who are placed for permanency have significant developmental trauma, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just lifelong stories. And for many of them, we'll never know what those stories are. You know, they were pre-verbally harmed. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've been moved so many times, the records didn't go with them. They've been in different countries, different states, different counties pages and pages, bank boxes of records if we had them all. So I do a better job of tracking a child's history than we used to. I think we do a better job of transparency and disclosure. Uh, And I know that there's some parents right now rolling their eyes going, yeah, right, Um, because I get that. But we're better than I think take an adoption out of the closet and put it out in the open where the sun can shine on it like it should. We can openly, freely talk about adoption with children and families and relatives. Um, We are also open, uh, discussing open adoption in a more frank, honest way. Like Mm -hmm. what adoption doesn't mean a card and letter once a year. You know, that isn't an open adoption. That's what we used to think about a contact. So in those regards, I think we're doing a better job. We're even having this discussion about post-adopt support services I mean, 20 years ago, it's like, here's the child, shut the door. What do you mean there's, you need services? You don't need, you're like, why? Yeah. Because of course the magic, the myth of adoption is we're going to take out very harmed a child, give the child to a wonderful family and they're going to get magically better. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. Well, so that's changed. Yeah, some training, some training I was doing with our staff and clinicians, um, you know, we, we make the mistake of assuming all of us, you know, that if a child is, is adopted at birth, well, then that's when their life begins. That's history. There's of no course. Past. Wait, are you saying that's not true? <laughs> and then we, <laughs> and then I miss your sarcasm, Dina. And then, <laughs> you know, for an adolescent, it's like, now your life begins. You can forget all the past. Right, right. And yeah. why do you still call those people mom? Right. And why would you want to go back to a dad who abused you and molested you for three years or 10 years or whatever? Right. How can you do that? It's all, it's all intertwined. And, you know, um, for our parents, a lot of them, you know, they have a lot of strong feelings about the people who did hurt their children. Yep. And, and I've had parents who, you know, when we've tried to explain, look, we have to present their past in as positive a light as possible, yet still be honest. Yes. 
And, and we've had, you know, parents push back on that. How do you want me to present something in a light when what they did to my child is yep. heartbreaking, devastating, and should yep. never have happened. And yep. if I'm in a room with them alone, I'll do the same thing to them. Yep. That kind of, you know, think, and I can understand it. Yep. How do you, how do you handle that with parents? Well, again, I will probably step on some more toes because <laughs> <laughs> I am, I am um, out there in this, on this topic. I think adoptive parents have been taught and, and convinced that they must always, always speak about the birth family in positive regard. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always going to honor that birth family. We're never going to trash talk them. And if the child asks, we're going to say, well, you know, your mom loved you. She just didn't know how to take care of you. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that isn't true, Norm. Mm-hmm. There are some parents who do not love their children. Yeah. They weren't meant to be parents. And if, if having intercourse with your three-year-old is love, that isn't love. And I don't want to talk to that child about that's love. Your, your dad loved you. He just didn't know how to take care of you is a bold faced lie. Because then we put that child in a new home where a daddy says, I love you. And she says, no, thanks. I already loved once. I didn't like it. So I think we slap around the word love or cherish way too often referring to birth families mm-hmm. to say they didn't know how to do the mom job. I don't know why they never went to mom school. You know, your dad, whatever was going on with him, you deserved a dad who could really cherish you. And I'm going to be that dad. And I don't know why you didn't get that the first time around. Mm-hmm. Um, you, and that is honest. That is yeah, absolutely that is honest. honest. And, and you're not saying, and I hate him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I hate him. And I hope his, his feet fall off, you know, when he's 20. I don't know. We're not going to join the child in saying horrible things about the parent, and we're not going to initiate the conversation, but we're also not going to sugarcoat it and say, oh, I'm sure they really miss you. I'm, I'm, I'm sure they would do it differently if they could. That's true for some birth families, mm-hmm. but it absolutely isn't true for some birth families. So I, I just think we have to take the child's story and be authentic with it. And, yeah. and maybe that is hard truth and isn't, adoption already a hard truth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Dina, that's such great counsel. It really is. I'm, I'm, I'm sick to death of reading these terrible stories and then having a child say, but my dad loved me. Right. Mm. Mm, yeah. Really? I don't know. Maybe dad was so mentally ill that he couldn't love. Yeah. You know, some, some people can't. So, so given your expertise and your history, Dina, what's one area you feel we need to do better in assisting adoptive families? There's three things we need to do, Norm. Training, yeah. training, and training, and training. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay, so, so a question that's often been asked of me, how do you train parents with what they could need to be prepared for without scaring them off in the first place? Right. You know, if we're going to scare people off in the first place, good, that would be a great place to start being scared. Because when I do pre-adopt training, you know, and if I have like 10 people out of 40 say, this isn't for me, that is exactly a decision point that needs to be offered as an opportunity to ditch the whole process, right? Um, I'm supposed to say, oh, this has happened to some people, but it won't happen to you. You know, most folks, when they go to these trainings go, but that won't be my story. That won't be my story. So if people get scared off at the beginning, and I know it's hard to recruit really great foster adopt folks, if, if we give them the hard reality right up front, I think it's a misservice not to do anything with that. It's like, yep, this could be hard. 
So what we do is we tell them how hard it can be. Uh, so we're prepared. Then we give them a really hard child, but then too often we go away. We don't give them the ongoing support. So mm -hmm. I've had hundreds of adoptive families tell me, you know, the training I, you just did now, if I would have had that six months after placement or a year after placement or 18 months after placement, instead of 15 years after placement, I'd have done a lot better job. Wow. So, so the pre-adopt is just getting your feet wet. You know, that's like reading a book about labor. <laughs> it doesn't really tell the story. I'm not, I'm not going to comment on that. I've no, got nothing to say about that. I... No, I mean, you can, you can <laughs> factually know what's possible, but it doesn't really capture the experience. Right. Once you have that child in your home, you need to go revisit the things that you were taught before the child came to you, because then you can really figure out, oh, that's what we're talking about here. Um, and they have real life examples, like what do I do with this child who does this now? Yeah, remember in those classes, we talked about such and such, and there's a reference point. But I think we fail to do ongoing support. Mm -hmm. um, for families with with children, I think we until they hit a crisis, yeah, right, yeah. and then oh, then we boy, then we have you, you we have your program, thank goodness. But you know, families come to your program in crisis. Wouldn't it be great if we had lots of other continuum of services uh, between the start and the crisis placement out of home to help these children and families? For example. Um, as an adoption therapist, most people would contact me to say, uh, we have uh, two adopted children, the 11 year old is really struggling. Of course, that would be you know, predicted. The wheels are falling off, we don't know what to do with him. His five-year-old brother's okay, but we need a therapist now, we're in crisis. How about if we give a family these two really hard children as part of their adoption plan, they have an adoption competent professional in their pocket already. Yeah. Just like you have to do a, a child, a birth child for well child checks, right? You're going to have your inoculations. If you believe in them, you're going to be weighed and measured and they're going to check with mommy and daddy or the mommies and the daddies. Who's, how are you doing here? Um, so we can flag concerns developmentally as things uh, heat up instead of waiting. Because I mean, I don't know about you, Norm, but like as a, as a, as a trauma adoption therapist, no parent has ever called me and asked for an appointment just to sit down and tell me how freaking good it's going. <laughs> hey, you no. have to We're a success. I, I, I will confess that there have been times when I had my private practice that I came home and told my wife, look, I, I'm just going to see healthy people from now on. It's just a little overwhelming. Yes. I, you know, I have a lot of colleagues that um, say, oh, you work with all these adopted foster kids on medical assistance. Couldn't you work with the suffering well off? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> that's not my calling yeah. um, but my point about the services of course is that a sh the continuity of services need to be available uh before the families feel like they're failing or they're just at their wits ends or they're falling out of love with each other yeah that i i think that is so valid i mean we you know as as, as someone who operates a residential treatment center we really do see ourselves as a last resort right um you know, everything, what we encourage parents is that everything that can be tried or should be tried at home should be done, right. you know, um, unless until safety becomes an issue. Right. Um, right. And, but, and, you know, and I know there's a, we don't want to pathologize children just because they're adopted. Right. 
But with all the talk of healthcare on the national level right now, we really need to think about pre-existing conditions for these children in terms of their mental health. They are placed with pre-existing conditions. They look great. They're adorable. They're cute, you know, but then they're not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. Because their trauma is all invisible. Yeah. And and because it's developmental, you know, it's tricky because maybe they've got two or three years of really great progress. And then all of a sudden things go badly and nobody understands. And then we say, oh, this child has attachment trouble. But wait a minute, that child looks securely attached for the last three years. And, and, and if you're a great adoptive family and your kid looks and feels securely attached, and then all of a sudden is struggling, how shaming is it for somebody like me to come in and say, oh, you didn't parent to, the, to attachment. This child is never really attached to you. That's just not right. And it's not accurate clinically either. No, it's not. How, how isn't it, I, I confess, isn't it a, a, almost a hobby of people in our profession to blame the adoptive parents? Well, it is all their fault. Of course it is, right? It's amazing. It absolutely is. And I wouldn't say that's unique to adoption. I think in family systems therapy in general, when children act out, people always look at the parents and go, tut, 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 what did you do wrong? <laughs> Yeah, it reminds me of a bumper sticker I saw one time. It said, after all is said and done, it really is your parents' fault. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, so, so and, and, and again, as, as we talk about clinical services for these children, and, and our parents have heard me preach about this before, until we get developmental trauma in the DSM, clinicians are not going to be taught about it. Right. You know, in graduate school, we're not going to be training people on it. Insurance companies aren't going to acknowledge it. We're going to stick with the same old oppositional affiant ADHD, you know, uh, PTSD diagnoses that don't really conceptualize at all what our kids have been through. I agree. Well, I actually find the uh, new diagnosis, other trauma, otherwise specified or unspecified, other trauma, whatever the heck. I think that's useless. Yeah. What does that mean? You stubbed your toe in the dark? I mean... (laughs) I mean, I get it, but I don't. It's not, it's not helpful to parents and it's not helpful to children. No, and, and it's not helpful in trying to train clinicians in it because, you know, when I was going to graduate school and, and probably when you, we focused on the DSM and the diagnoses in the DSM. Right. And that's what we worked with. Right. And uh, woefully inadequate. Right. Woefully right. inadequate. Yep. Right. Yep. So, Dina, as, as we're talking, we have a group of parents listening to us who have been through the ringer. Oh. You know, and, and, and by the time, you know, by the time you place a child in a program, you're, you're emotionally exhausted, you're physically exhausted, you're financially exhausted, you have all these layers of weariness. And what, weariness, both, yes. Yeah. So, so what counsel would you have for parents, you know, who are tired? Who are tired? Especially, yeah. frankly, because 2020 keeps giving, doesn't it? Yeah, don't get me going there. Yeah. Um, so, of course, you're tired. You are doing a relentless and thankless job. Your children, um, your children don't wake up and go, "Thanks for adopting me. You're this, the greatest dad or mom." Mm-hmm. Your friends and relatives go, "We told you not to." Um, your neighbors say, "Well, you made your bed, lie in it." So you're shamed and blamed because you're exhausted and frustrated. And I think as a parent, one of the most painful places to be is feeling 
like you have no answers. You're absolutely helpless to do the next thing because you've done every single thing that you can think of and it just isn't helpful. And you've followed all the advice and that hasn't worked either. And I wanna start by saying, I'm so sorry because I know that um, you started out in the right place with good honorable intentions and a heart and a family full of love. Um, that's still who you are. You still are that person, even though sometimes you don't sound like the person you think you used to be. That is still you. And you are working in a trauma-filled environment because your families do become toxic because your children bring all the hurt and rage and pain with them right into your life and into your heart. And if you weren't the kind, compassionate person that you are, it would have hurt. You'd go, oh, well, can't win them all. <laughs> but that's not how you feel about it. You feel deeply and intensely. And then I want to say the children that you have, the way they behave, they behave that way no matter who adopted them. It's not you. Mm -hmm. They just have those issues, right? They have them. They'd have them if they were in my home. They'd have them in Norm's home. They might have them worse in my home, you know, and they have them in your home. There is no geographical fix in terms of maybe they would have been, because it's tempting to fantasize, maybe they would have gotten better with a different family. Maybe they just needed to live somewhere else. Maybe if they had a family with fewer children, more children, no pets, more pets, country, if they lived in the home, if they had a sibling, if they didn't have a sibling, we can fantasize all we want about if only they would have had that. And I'm here to say it wouldn't have mattered. Your child and they are an exhausting person. And you have spent hours and dollars and heartache looking for the answers, the, that magic bullet. Maybe this work, workshop, maybe this book, maybe this program, maybe this author. And there is no silver bullet. Sometimes programs work and sometimes they don't. Sometimes therapy works and sometimes it doesn't. And um, even Norm's program is a great cutting edge program and it doesn't work for everybody and it works for a period of time and then it doesn't because there's no one solution to love and raise a hurt kid. So you need to stop blaming yourself, first of all, or blaming each other or blaming the birth family or blaming the system to let you down because everybody has some responsibility. All of us have a piece of that blame pie. Okay, and a lot of it to go around. Um, we're also not going to take the children completely off the hook for their horrible decisions, right? They can be a little brats. So let's call it like it is. It's like, oh, that poor thing. And we don't get anywhere by treating them like poor little things. Or, no. or by pity. Oh, no, no pity. Uh -uh. We're going to get their butts out of bed and make them ride a wild horse, you know? So just know that what you are doing is worthy that you have not screwed it up. You have not broken this kid. You have not wrecked their life. This kid probably feels at times like it's wrecked your life. Like he or she has destroyed what you used to have as a, as a family unity. But through pain, you know, I can't think of anything really worth having that doesn't cost us something. Mm -hmm. The easy life lessons are the ones we forget. They don't mean anything, right? When you're old and you're sitting in a nursing home and your great-great-grandchildren come to see you, actually, they'll be living with your great-great-grandchildren. <laughs> they, don't, they don't say, you know, tell me the story. They look at a scar on your hand and say, 
tell us the story of how you got bit by a wild wolf, grandma. Or, you know, they see the visible scars. That's, the, that's what makes our stories. So you're building stories that are gonna be painful, but helpful to remember. And you're gonna take your story and you're gonna take this kid and you're gonna be okay with this kid. And okay doesn't look great sometimes, but it's okay. Because the child that you're loving, struggling with, might be dead if you hadn't taken them in. They might be in prison. They might be a lot of things, but they're not. They're getting their needs met. They're safe. They're learning. And you're still in their life. So that's not so bad. Well said. Very well said. My gosh. I I, I practiced. (laughs) You're so fun. I am so fun. So going into some specifics, you know, one of the things that that our, our, our parents do struggle with when their kids dysregulate. You know, and they'll dysregulate over, you know, this because of developmental trauma, they can dysregulate over, over things that are just unknown below the surface, what have you. A popsicle. It's never convenient. No, no. Never convenient. Mm -hmm. Having worked with that, Mm -hmm. what coaching do you have for parents in managing moments of dysregulation that can be unexpected and they're certainly never convenient? Never. No, no, no. And in fact, yeah, they're never convenient. Um, and they happen when a parent is most exhausted, most fatigued, or most hopeful that they had a two really good days, and now they've let their guard down and they'll go, oh, we're all good, and then it really goes out bad, which mm-hmm. is predictable, of course. Um, the most important thing that you can do for yourself and for your child, no matter what they do, is to stay in relationship. What does that mean? That means Throw out the window all the things you can think about as strategies and techniques and, and, and workshopping modalities for therapy. Throw it out and hang on to what do you know about just calming your body and staying present without retaliating, without responding, without, without reacting. And that's, why are you doing this to me now? This, 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 you know, because these kids trigger us like crazy. Let's face it, folks. A lot of you have secondary trauma. Really, you do. You have anxiety, you have depression, and you didn't used to have it, and now you do. So these kids will trigger you. And when we're triggered, we don't behave like our best selves, and we respond in a dysregulated manner. They need a calm, helpful person in the moment. And if that's all you can do is stay calm, you get an A because you didn't hit them. And you feel like you want to hit them and you don't scream. I hate you. I wish I would never have adopted you, but you feel that someplace. You don't say I'm, I'm going to meet your worker tomorrow and try to figure out how to end this. Even though you've secretly thought that too, you don't say those things. You don't hate yourself. You say, all right, this isn't gonna last 20 years. This particular tantrum isn't gonna last 20 years. This tantrum is gonna end just in time for the next one. And I need to go to the bathroom in between. So I'm gonna stay calm to end this tantrum episode, whatever. So a couple of things, you have to be safe. And if you're not, you call the police. You, 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 nobody, you never signed up to be physically abused. Okay, that's what the police are for, or the crisis unit or whoever you've got in your community. If the child isn't safe, if you're not safe and you can't keep them safe, you get help. Because I have seen far too many bruises 
and cuts and bites and lacerations and injuries from parents who didn't feel like they should go to that extreme if the child is out of control. And let me say, there's no shame in that. It's, it's, it's necessary sometimes. So call the resources you need for physical safety. And if physical safety is achieved, you breathe deep. You say, I'm, this kid needs a calm person. That's all they need. You don't have to say anything. In fact, you shouldn't say anything. You should just go, bang. You know, just sit there, stand there, be in the space. Don't be too close to them because it's not safe for them or you. But try to remain calm. That's hard. That's like saying, okay, um, mom and dad, I'm going to take your hand and open it, put it over an open flame. And I really don't want you to yell (laughs) or pull it back. I just want you to go, oh, wow, that's hot. (laughs) Well, that's really hot. And that's what I'm sort of asking you to do is to say, that's the pain. I can be near it and I don't have to be hurt by it. I can be in its presence without feeling like it's my fault. And if you don't think it's your fault, you're not going to be nearly as reactive, okay? Now, let's talk about when it is your fault. Sometimes you do do and say things that trigger your kids, right? That happens, Norm. That's reality. You know what I want to say to that? Get over it. <laughs> Get over <laughs> it. Because it's going to happen. It, that's the deal of parenting, right? Your parents did it. You do it to your kids. I did it to my kids. They remind you. Yeah, they remind I'm you not going to share this with my with my kids because then they're going to really, yeah. Right. Get over <laughs> it. You know, I don't know a parent that hasn't made a mistake. And if they think they haven't, they're not very good. So we've all made them. So don't beat yourself up by it. Well, I really shouldn't have said that because that really created a big drama. It's like, well, yeah, next time maybe you won't. Okay, because the really great thing about your kids is they will give you a next time. <laughs> Always, right? Absolutely. And know that you're in good company. Many, many people, and it's not just adopted parents, right? It's not just adopted families. It's it's birth families too. Have children, mental health problems can roost in any nest, quite frankly, and do. Um, So there are many, many families that have this hopeless despair. I can't stand this. Why did we have kids to begin with? Feeling at times, it's normal. In fact, it's so normal, it's called normative crisis how's that there you go crisis and it's normal there you go you know as as we've talked we focus a lot about the challenges some of the emotional upheaval all of those um i think it's important i i know you feel very strongly about this dina that that we emphasize to parents that we absolutely no child is lost no child is beyond help no child is beyond healing we absolutely believe in the malleability of the brain yep. of neurological healing yep. that we can, we can reopen that attachment window. They can become attached. Yep. Uh, you know, it's, yep. it's, it's a shame that we do focus so much on some of the challenges as opposed to right. the victories. And I know you've yep. seen plenty of them. Unbelievable stories. And I, I mean, I have families and children that um, I worked with, 25 years ago. Now, keep in mind, I started in this field when I was seven years old. That's why I, I, 
I have families that continue to contact me, uh, cards, letters, pictures, emails that, that say we never thought we'd survive it and our children would become foster parents or our daughter adopted or, you know, and some of the stories are heartache heart stories and, and many of them aren't. They are very good, good stories. And, and it breaks my heart when I'll be reading a court report and someone refers to a child as unadoptable. Oh. I just can't believe it. Every child deserves and needs a family. Now that doesn't mean um, every child could live with a family sometimes, you know, they have a family, but they need to live somewhere else for periods of time. Very okay, right? That is very okay. In fact, I'm convinced that my teenagers should have all lived somewhere else. <laughs> teenagers instead of with me, but they didn't. <laughs> I think that's okay, you know, and, and in village life, uh, as we used to have villages, children could actually go to grandma and live with her or, or great Nina or somebody uh, and have a break from that intensity of those relationships as we're developing new attachment formations. Um, yeah. So yeah, I am there. I remain incredibly hopeful um, for both parents and relatives and these children that we love because our brains do change. You know, thank goodness, right? Mm -hmm. Goodness, they change. Absolutely. And, and adolescence, at childhood and adolescence is by far the hardest time. And then, and Norm, you have quite a few adolescents in your program, right? Yep, all adolescents. So I, I don't know what got me thinking about this. Well, actually, your invitation to do this, but think back to when you were a teenager. Mm -hmm. I, I know we have a hard time remembering when we were ever a teenager. I was like yesterday, actually. Yeah, yeah, I bet it was. <laughs> and think about what was going on when you were a teenager and your, and your friends and your relatives who were teenagers. I think being a teenager is the hardest job on the planet. So your body starts to betray you. You get pimples all over your skin, right? Like you go to bed thinking you're looking okay and you wake up looking like you had the chicken pox and you don't. And then people call you names because of the spots on your face. Or maybe you have acne on your, on your back and you can't wear a swimsuit or, you know, so your body, and, and then you start to smell, right? Like in ways you didn't smell before. And you have hair that you're either trying to grow more of or cut off <laughs> all over your body. And you don't want people to see it. And then, you, and then you go to a school where you have to strip naked in front of people so they can see all your naughty bits. And you're like, don't even like your body anymore because it looks so different. Then you don't know if people like you if they're talking behind your back. They don't know if they're telling stories behind you. Maybe a guy or girl is trying to come on to you and you don't know exactly what that means. And your friends are all talking about doing it and you're not sure what it might be, but maybe you should do it because they're doing it too. Uh, or maybe you've never had a friend and somebody pays you five bucks to get it on in the bathroom and go, yeah, he liked me, I'll do that. That's all in adolescence. Starting at about 11 and 12 now, right? it is the crappiest, cruddiest time to be a human being. And now we have social media, which makes it so much harder. So much worse. You wrap all of that up and put COVID bow on top. <laughs> oh, goodness. How would you want to be a teenager these days, right? What a painful job. I mean, I would love to do an informal survey of your parents, Norm, and have them do a survey of, how happy, well-adjusted, how much did they like themselves? How secure did they feel? Did they like the way they looked? 
Did they feel like they were popular? Did they feel like they were smart or dumb? I wonder what they'd say. Yeah, it's a good question. Because, <laughs> and that's just a well-adjusted teenager. Right, right. <laughs> that's a typical developmental teenager. And then we put on trauma and insecurity and grief and loss, right? Layer upon layer. Unbelievable. And all those angsts, we call it angst, like it's like a torn toenail, you know, <laughs> teenage angst. What the heck, you know? It's so much more complicated than that. Yeah. So my, right. my heart goes out to these kids who right now are trying to navigate our world um, in the context of an adoptive permanent family. Yep, absolutely. The challenges are enormous. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, they're up to the task. I know they are. Yep. I know they are. Well, thankfully, they have landed in a place where they're getting some supports. Yeah. Much needed supports. Yep. Probably needed it a lot sooner than you got it. You probably tried to talk to people about how hard things were in your family and you got placated or blamed or... Or, or are we talking about the same child? That child never had any issues when she lived in that home. Right. That previous foster family or grandma or auntie never said anything about those behaviors when they were living with her. Yeah. Uh, and let's face it, the transition from foster to adopt is, is very much like uh, dating to marriage. <laughs> it's not the same animal. Yeah, this is true. It is a clash of cultures. Mm -hmm. Absolutely a clash of cultures. Yeah. So, so Dina, as, as we, as we start to wrap up here, you, like I said, you are such a font of wisdom and uh -huh. I'm so appreciative of everything you've shared today. Uh, is there anything else you feel like you have a, you have a platform here? Is there anything else you feel like you'd want to share with our parents? I do want to say something that is going to, everybody's eyes are going to roll because um, it sounds so trite. Mm -hmm. And yeah, 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 boring, boring. But really, the element of self-care mm -hmm. in 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 the world of adoption. Um, you are heroes, and you don't want to be called heroes, but you are doing an extraordinary thing. What person, quite frankly, in their right mind, raises their hand to say, "I'll tackle somebody else's hurt, damaged child," because I can. I'll do that. It's just not in in. It's really quite. It's, up, it's going upstream. In the mammal world, there are very few species that will actually nurse another young that isn't theirs. Most of those uh, born mammals die. Okay, they, they, we just, it's really hard to get other mammals to foster. We're mammals, okay? Let's probably all know that, we're mammals. And if we don't take care of our children, they die. Well, your children psychologically we're dying on the vine. And you said, wow, I can take somebody else's hurt child into my family and my heart and help. But you didn't know that that would come at such a cost to you. You didn't know it, mm -hmm. but now you do. And I know it sounds silly, but you have to take care of yourself. You have to eat right, exercise, whatever. You have stopped somewhere along the line in this journey, you stopped. You stopped thinking that your own well-being was absolutely critical. In, in the world of, uh, you know, attachment, you are the foundation. The child doesn't need you to hold them up. 
Yes, they do. I mean, you don't need the child, right? The, the, the pyramid isn't upside down. The child at the bottom. You're at the bottom. Supporting, scaffolding, structuring this child. You can't do that if you fall apart. You can't. You do need a few minutes a day to yourself. You do need a conversation with somebody that doesn't include the child. Yep. You do need to read a book that isn't about healing the attachment disorder child. You do need to watch a movie that's just frivolous and silly. You do need to get online and buy um, a new pair of walking shoes and not just for your child or your, the rest of your family. You need to maybe say to your family, I'm going to paint the kitchen because it makes me happy and everybody needs to get out of my way for two days. Whatever it, I think I like to paint. So I think it's cool. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I've done it three times. No, I haven't. I, I, my, actually, I just bought this house about a year and a half ago. And the kitchen was apple green. Like, I mean, ugh. <laughs> yeah, I, it's not anymore. But whatever it is that you find relaxing, if it's mowing the grass, if it's, you know, pruning your trees, if it's reading a book, if it's going for a walk, if you don't have 15, 20 minutes a day to do that, you're in trouble. It's not sustainable. You are in trouble because your child needs a parent that understands his and her priorities are survival and survival is about self-care. So it's, I just want you to know if you stopped eating today and said the rest, the rest of the food in the world is going to go to children. I don't need to eat anything. You die. You would start. You would. This fact, you know, you don't have to be smarty pants like me to know you die. Yep. Start. What if psychologically you stopped feeding your soul? You just stopped. You will die. You will die. Psychologically, you will die. You need your spiritual self. You need your relationships, virtual as they are. You need whatever you need. You know what it is. And a long time ago, you probably stopped thinking that you had time to do it. And once in a while you go, oh, remember when I used to do that? Wow. And you liked it. And you'd like it again if you did it. Your child isn't going to die if they have another temper tantrum because you're doing the thing you need to do. But you might. So psychically, please take care of yourself. This is really, really hard work. There's a reason that firefighters work four days on and then get three days off. Because the intensity, the, the intensity, right? You can't maintain it, and we know that you're no different. In fact, it's probably harder. At least they have big hoses and ladders. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they get all this cool equipment and axes and stuff. Yeah, and Dalmatians. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that would be what I would say, Norm. Thank you, Dana. That's just fantastic. It, it really is. You know, I. I like to say to parents and to our staff, the kids need to borrow serenity. And if we don't have it, they can't borrow it. We don't have it to give, they can't. Isn't that right? Yeah. Isn't that right? We need to borrow serenity. And in the end, things are going to be the way they're going to be. Nobody put us in control of the outcome. I mean, control is an illusion. <laughs> you know, we are, we are gifted with these children or they're gifted with us for a period of time for a certain amount of things that we're supposed to do. They're really out of our hands. So much of this has always been out of our hands. We're just in the journey. And I, and I like to think about the, the Native American belief about parenting, you know, in 
in the white German Lutheran community I grew up in, um, a mixed race family was when a Lutheran marries a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's true. Um, but the Native American story is, um, and I had this an elder tell me this years and years ago, that you know, you white people, you you have a child, and then you get busy for the rest of that child's upbringing, uh, helping them stay on the path, the right path, the road they're supposed to be on. And you make sure they're on that path and you clear the obstacles and, and pay their way and do whatever to keep them on the path. He said, in, in the Native American culture, we don't do that. Our job as a parent is just to stay on the path with them wherever they go. Mm. Wow, that's and powerful. What a, yeah, what a different way to vision what we're doing. You're not in control of their path. You, when we're talking about staying in the moment when they're dysregulated, you just stay on the path with them. You're not guiding them to a different place necessarily. You're just staying there. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I can't take right. credit. I can't take credit for it. I love learning from you, Dina. Vice versa, Norm. Thank you. Thank you. So, so before we wrap up, how how do people find out, you know, about uh, your practice? Uh, well, they don't. You? No, no. Oh, no, no, they don't find out about my practice. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about McMahon Counseling and Consultation Services? Your current what about work. It? What about it? You know. I'm one of one. I'm me. I don't have, you know, even my business manager hasn't worked since COVID. So, like, geez. <laughs> I'm more me, you know? It's just me. <laughs> That's fun. That's fun. So, so basically, as far as a private practice goes, as far as people wanting to consult with you, you're probably tied up. I'm pretty okay. busy. I do. I am not taking on new clients right now. Uh-huh. Um, I am certainly doing consulting. Um, I'm trying to avoid webinars. If this would have been a webinar, I'd have said no. Yeah. It wasn't. Thank you. Sure. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm happy to do what I can for individuals and agencies that need the help. Yeah. That's, that's what I am. But I'm not taking on long-term clients. Well, we are, you know, speaking for those on the attach board and those in the attach organization and those who know you, we are so grateful for your work, for your expertise. Well, Uh, I'm grateful for, yeah, well, that goes, and thank you for inviting me. Well, uh, I, I know this has been worthwhile to our parents. And so I'm very, very grateful. Well, what a great group. I've heard you talk at length about how fantastic your families are in your program. So I, I know you're, you're speaking the truth. Yeah. Thank you, Dina. I wish Thank you, you I wish you a wonderful afternoon and a, a hug, rest Norm. of it here. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Virtual, virtual hug. hugs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Take Bye-bye. care, Dina. Bye-bye.